Well, uh, tonight we're going to be talking about what it means that Jesus uh, is our glory. And so let me pray before we do that. Lord, our default and what we're used to doing, kind of it's our second nature, our rhythm, is to do what we've been talking about the past few weeks, to relate to ideas or to relate to teaching. Uh, perhaps to relate to principles or techniques for how to do the Christian life better or how to figure out whether I should become a Christian or not. And, and we are slow to realize that you're alive, that you're real, that you're a person. And so tonight, Lord Jesus, as we've just saying, we need you and we want you. Uh, and we ask you to come. And we ask you to pastor us and shepherd us and teach us and heal us and be our physician. And we ask this in your name. Amen. I told you all last week I was a freshman here in 1999, long time ago, uh, before some of you were born, I think, by this point. And when I was in school um, here at UGA, study abroad was not really a thing. I look back at some statistics. In 1999, when I was a freshman, 10% of the UGA student body, by the time they had graduated, had done any kind of foreign study experience, whether it was a summer or a fall or a spring. And then by last year, 2017, that had tripled, about 30%, or one out of every three uh, UGA students. Now at some point in some way or another does a, a study abroad or foreign study uh, experience before the time um, they graduate. And a lot of you have, like uh, Johanna just left last week, she's in Oxford now, some of y'all are going to Spain, some of y'all just got back from the Galapagos Islands or Costa Rica, and it's one of my favorite things to talk to you about when you get back. Um, I kind of vicariously lived through you. I never got to do a foreign study, so I'm like, what are the professors at Oxford like, or um, what were the Galapagos Islands like? Um, and y'all inevitably, I've never, I mean, hard stuff happens because you're you in that foreign study experience and other people are other people, so hard stuff still happens. But I've never heard of a person who didn't love their study abroad uh, time. And uh, here's the other thing. Or there's a reason that the university has gone from 10% to 30%. The president at the time, uh, Michael Adams, started this whole new initiative to try to boost the amount of people at UGA doing study abroad experience. The university started getting ton like $100 million donations to try to fund it put tons of resources to try to make this happen, and it's working. So are universities across the country, because if you look at the national statistics, it tracks the same, 10% to 30%, uh, since around the year 2000. They have seen such value in study abroad and these kind of experiences. Interestingly, one of the places that this idea was drawn from, these immersive experiences like study abroad, is the military. Boot camp. Imagine, um, or, or think with me, like when you're the new cadet, Air Force, Army, Marine, whatever, and you step foot off that bus that drove you onto the base, and your foot hits that pavement, they're not treating you like a civilian. It's a full immersion. You step foot on that ground, and you're no longer whatever your name is, you're cadet so-and-so, or you're a soldier, and you eat like a soldier, you're spoken to like a soldier, you take orders like a soldier, you fight like a soldier. Everything you do is fully immersed, sunk, or submerged in the life of the military, the culture 
of the military and military life. Uh, You're immersed in this entire new reality, even though you still spend six weeks or six months or a year or a few years trying to wrap your head around this new place you are and what it all means. And the same is true if we go back to the study abroad stuff. For instance, if you step foot off a plane in Spain, um, immediately from that first second until the time you come back home, you eat like a Spaniard. You talk or will have to learn how to talk like a Spaniard because you're surrounded by them and you have to speak their language. You'll pay like a Spaniard. You'll siesta like a Spaniard. You'll, you'll stay up till two or three in the morning walking around with everybody else in Spain just like them. And why? Why does that happen? Because you're completely immersed in it. Very different than class here where you go take a little 45-minute break from real life, learn about something, and then go back. There, you're all the way in it. You're sunk beneath it. You're submerged into that reality for as long as you're there. And here's the deal of talking about boot camps and study abroads and these immersive experiences, immersion learning. There is a sense in which Paul, the way he describes the work of God's grace in your life, if you're a Christian, we'll If you're not or you don't know where you are, we'll talk about that in a minute. If you're a Christian, the way the Bible talks about what has happened to you is similar to what we're talking about with study abroad or boot camp. It is an immersive experience, a submersive experience, where you you are sunk into this new reality. And just like boot camp and study abroad, everything has changed for you. It's a whole new culture. You know, we spent the past two weeks talking about the way Paul describes how God has taken you or delivered you out of the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the transition. That's the plane flight, as it were. And he's planted you in this new reality. He's immersed you in it past your head. You're sinking in it. It's all around you. The air you breathe, everything about you has changed. He said, you were not reconciled, we talked about last week. Now you have been reconciled to a God who was at one moment in your life angry at you, angry at your rebellion, and now has been reconciled. He has reconciled you. He has taken the object of that anger away and is now at peace with you, now loves you, now calls you son or daughter, has adopted you, another piece of your reality that's changed And so you have a new father, a new family. The people sitting around you aren't the other sophomore guy that comes. It's your brother. It's not that girl in the sorority. It's your sister. There's a new language. There's a new reason and a way we use our tongues and we speak to one another. There's a new goal in why we talk. There's a new goal for your sexuality, a new goal for your intellect, for your your working life, your vocation. There's a new reason to live new power to fight sin, new loves and new hates. That's what you've been immersed into. Everything has changed and there's no escaping it. Again, it's not the classroom experience where I kind of go dip into RUF for an hour and 15 minutes and then I go back. That's not the way Paul ever talks about the reality of where you are and what's happened to you now. It is it is immersive, it is all-encompassing, it is 24-7-365 ad infinitum. Forever a new reality for you. And that we're sunk beneath it. 
And so in the passage that Abigail read just a few minutes ago, if you have it on a phone or a Bible you brought with you, open it up and look at it. Where do we see what I'm talking about in this passage? Because on first glance, I get it. Uh, it, it doesn't leap off the page to you. It will in the future weeks even more blatantly. But tonight in this passage, it's a, little, it's a little bit more subtle. And here's the reality that you have been immersed into. If you have been made alive by the grace of God, his mercy has resurrected you out of death, out of rebellion, out of your way. Christ in you. Simple. That's the reality that you've landed into. You step out and you look around, and this is life now. Christ in you. Paul says the hope of glory. Let's start chipping away at that to figure out what he means. He means, at the, at the very least, the living, breathing, resurrected, generous, gracious, patient, righteous, good, just, truthful Jesus has not intervened, but has invaded has not intervened, but has inhabited you permanently, too. Not with a sleeping bag, but has like moved into your house. And you're like, are you staying? Okay, wow. Got to make some adjustments here. Has inhabited you, is what Paul says, Christ in you. Now, interestingly, almost every other time Paul talks about this new reality, he reverses it. And you're probably more familiar with that. Usually, this same Paul describes your new reality, the new world you live in as you being in Christ. Is that more familiar? He says it all the time. If you look for the prepositions, they're everywhere. We're in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He says in a few verses from here, we'll look at next week, we are rooted in Jesus, built up in Jesus, and so walk in Jesus. But here he flips and he says, Jesus is in you. And it's one of, the only, one of the few places he does this. And so, again, just a surface-level scrape of this before we go a little deeper. At the very least, he means you are in Jesus and Jesus is in you, which is a clunky way of saying you're one with him. Where he is, you are, which is what the Bible says. Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father, indestructible, invulnerable or, or uh, unassailable, unattackable by evil. He is reigning as a conqueror and so are his people who are united to him right now. It means wherever you are, he is. Are you in a valley? Are you in any of the places Chip said earlier when he said, we, RUF is here to meet you where you are? Well, that's not a boast. I was talking to someone today and I was like, you know, we need to make sure when we say that phrase, we meet you where you are, that the person saying it is remembering, I desperately need you to meet me where I am too. We're not put together people who have been sent on mission to go meet you where you are. Would you please meet us where we are? Because where we are, where I am, where you are, is varying places of what Chip says every week. Bored or cynical, passionate, zealous. Maybe one week wonder, wondering, I never thought I'd be at this place in my life. This is so exciting. And the next month wondering, I never thought I'd be at this place. I never imagined my story would turn out like this. If you are in Jesus and he's in you, it means he's in that place too. And it means in that moment you're with him in heaven already reigning with him, already victorious over a battle you do not at all feel victorious over. It means what you go through, he goes through. 
It means what attacks you attacks him. What persecutes you persecutes him. What mocks, ridicules, and dismisses you dismisses him. And this is what Paul means when he makes this comment, I, have, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's suffering or I'm sharing in the afflictions of Jesus. It does not mean in any way there was any like redemptive work or any sacrificial work that Jesus didn't do that we need to kind of fill up. He's not talking about that. Nor is he saying that uh, Jesus is kind of still suffering in heaven. He's not. But it means that Jesus is so attached to you. He is so one with you. Which is more than to say he loves you, he's interested in you, he's concerned about you. Because I can say that about y'all and I'm not attached to you. He is one with you. And so when Paul, when this Paul was attacking Jesus' church, murdering Christians, trying to snuff out the early church, Jesus didn't come to Paul, uh, Saul on that road to Emmaus and say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my people? He said, why do you persecute me? When people pick a fight with you because you're a Christian they pick a fight with Jesus. When people reject you, Jesus says, more often than not, it's not because of you, it's because of him. Their qualm and their fight is with him, not with you. That is how close, how closely Jesus identifies with you, not just relationally, but really in an existential way. We'll keep scraping over this and trying to dig a little deeper, but at the, at the, at the basic level, you're in Christ and he is in you. And this is the new reality that you have been immersed in. You might not have known this, but this is where you are. It's so complete that Paul says in Galatians 2, it's no longer Paul who lives. I don't live anymore, he says, but it is Christ who lives in me. Two guys say this a lot better than I was capable of, so I want to read it from them. Sam Storms in a book called The Hope of Glory says this, trying to explain and flesh out more and more what it means that Christ is, that, we, that, he, that he is in you and that he's the hope of your glory. He says, Christ is not simply the reason that you, can have, you have hope for glory. Christ is himself the glory. He is the glory for which we long, the glory for which we have been predestined, the glory that makes all suffering and pain and disappointment in this life unworthy of comparison to the person and the presence of Jesus Christ himself. He is our glory. Being with him, to know him, to see him, to relish and rejoice in his beauty is the glory for which we hope. Forgiveness of sins and justification and adoption and all the other blessings of the gospel that we've talked about already are good and they're glorious, but only insofar as they make it possible for us to experience the permanent presence of and vision, and splendor of Jesus himself. Our hope, your hope, is Christ, period. He is your exceeding great reward, and he lives in you now, not figuratively, nor symbolically, nor merely, nor merely as it were, but he lives and abides in you now. And this is the ground and the assurance that we have of being with him and enjoying him forever. It's not that God's work in your life enables you to receive this glory, this hope. God himself is your glory. Your presence with him forever. Restoration of relationship of the God who made you and made you for himself. 
That's the glory. That's the prize. That's the gift in the gospel is the person of God forever. Rankin Wilburn brings it a little bit further down to earth. He spoke at summer conference a couple of years ago. He wrote a book on union with Christ that you should buy. He says this, you're not left with your own resources anymore. The obedient, powerful, merciful Jesus dwells within you. And Christ in you is greater than anything that threatens you. The person of Christ sets you free from sin's power. And when it feels as though you're drowning in a sea of trouble, you don't have to medicate your feelings or reach for solutions that might temporarily relieve, but ultimately destroy you. You can choose instead to draw on Christ's strength, and you will find that you're strengthened. You can take one step, even in the dark. You can make one new choice. You can hold on for one more minute. When temptation comes, you can say, that's not who I am anymore. I'm in Christ, and Christ is in me. And you can pray, Jesus, help me to be the person I am in you, by your grace. That's the -the on-the-ground impact, ripple effect, domino effect, game-changer that Christ in you, the hope of glory, makes on a day-to-day basis. You're living in a whole new reality, whether you knew it or not, whether you realized it happened or are just coming to grips with it. And this is not how we typically think of Jesus, right? The Colossians thought of Jesus wildly different than he actually is. And so Paul, who has met Jesus, seen him, been ministered to by him, has Jesus living in him, is coming and correcting piece by piece. A few weeks ago, we saw our tiny views of Jesus. Now here we see our distant views of Jesus, that he's some separate being than me. No, not anymore. We think of the Christian life as I go to RUF on Wednesdays, I go to small group on Thursdays, I go to church on Sundays, I go to some prayer thing one morning of the week, I read my Bible at this time of day, and we think of that as getting my fill of Jesus or refilling the tank or, or his love, being reminded of his love or his love rubbing off on me again at one of these places. And that happens, and that's great. But do you see how deficient that view is in light of this passage? You're thinking about Jesus as some separate person, some separate being than you, when in fact he is in you. You are united to him now. And I'm not diminishing the helpfulness of any of those things by no means. But I'm saying the way we think about these things is I've got to go to this place or to this thing to get my fill again. You're filled. There is, it's impossible to become more filled with Jesus. You have all of him. Dwelling in you by his spirit, Paul says, if you are alive, you have been united to him. Christ is in you. That is your hope of glory. And so this changes how we think about this. And again, I said it earlier, but we think of our relationship with God the way we think of our classes here in Athens. I go, I learn, I go back to my other life. When in fact you're in Spain. When in fact you're at boot camp and you can't get out. This is home, this is life, this is reality for you now, and everything has changed. That, this is great news, but it's also frustrating news. This is frustrating news too, and here's why it's frustrating. We've already said why it's great, but here's why it's frustrating. The hard thing about study abroad 
The hard thing about boot camp or any immersive experience is that first you're dropped into this new reality, then you learn about it, right? And it bothers the perfectionists in the room. It bothers the lovers of control in the room. It bothers the preparers or the procrastinators because we want to be ready before something happens. We want to become educated about it before that new reality comes. We want to learn Spanish and Spanish culture and Spanish hospitality and Spanish schedules beforehand. We want to be the person who's running 20 miles a day to get ready for boot camp before you get there. But there is no possible way to prepare yourself for an immersive experience. Why? Because it is literally every detail of your life is consumed in that new reality. And you can't be in some other reality getting ready for it. You are dumped in it first. You are rooted in it, established in it, transferred in it first. And then you begin the rest of your life learning what it all means, wrapping your head around all this new stuff. And it's hard and frustrating to do that in real time. Especially if you've done a foreign study in a country that doesn't have English as a first language, or maybe it's not an EU country where most of the people speak English. It's really frustrating. And it's really discouraging, isn't it? Because just to do the tiniest thing, you, you feel like you can't do anything. You feel like just to figure out where the next bus stop is, you've got to go like study for three hours to learn the language enough to ask that question. Just to figure out which coins do I hand this person to get this lunch is so frustrating. And then the culture stuff and the lost in translation stuff and the political things. And the same is true in this new reality that we are immersed in. We are learning in real time. We are coming to grips in real time with a reality that is already 100% true, 100% engaged, 100% already impacting, influencing, shaping, driving you. And that's difficult because it means there's a lot of confusion. It means there's frustration like I was talking about earlier. It means sometimes you think you got it and then you realize you don't. Sometimes there are these lost in translation moments and we're having to adapt all the way through it. First, you have been declared innocent. First, you have been called son or daughter. First, you have, Jesus has said over you, live. First, he's made you holy. First, he's put you in his kingdom. Then you learn. Then you wrap your head around, what does it mean that I'm a son, that I'm a daughter? What does that even mean that God is my father? What is this guy talking about Christ in me? I don't feel like that. Then we learn. Simultaneously, there are gospel realities that are true of you that you do not feel are true of you. You feel this gigantic gap between what Paul describes is or should be your experience and what you're experiencing. And that in and of itself is nerve-wracking sometimes, confusing, frustrating, or discouraging. And so, in these moments, we are confronted, and in this passage, we're confronted again with the reality that we have to keep relearning the basic things over and over and over again. If you've done this study abroad, you have to keep learning what's the quarter, what's the nickel, what's the penny, what's the $2 piece. You have to keep learning words like good morning and good night. You have to keep learning new bus routes. All of these things you have to keep learning day after day, even though they're extremely basic. 
And you have to do that in the midst of tremendous culture clash. You know America. You don't ask these questions here. You don't struggle with these things here. It's second nature. But it'll take a long time, a lot of patience for your new country, your new experience to become second nature and instinctive. And Paul says all of this right here. Several times, except not in a linear way, in a scattered way, Paul says things like this, reminding you of the simple things that you're in Jesus and he's in you. Paul says, this is what I toil for. This is what I struggle for so desperately on your behalf. I rejoice in these sufferings for your sake. He says, this is, this mystery that we're talking about, this reality is, this is what he's given his life to. To present you with reminders of the new place you already live. The new realities you're already caught up in that God has already put you in. This is why Paul says, I'm toiling and struggling to make the word of God fully known, which implies what? It's not fully known yet, not fully understood, not fully apprehended or grasped by the Colossians, by us. It's why he says, Jesus, we proclaim. This mystery hidden for the ages, this Messiah in Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his work on behalf of sinners who don't deserve his grace, but he freely offers it to. Jesus, Paul says, that's the sum and the substance of my ministry. He is who I talk about. Everywhere I go, every time I open my mouth, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that Paul may present everyone mature in Christ. Which means that this kind of re-education we're going through every day, little by little, and in real life circumstances, in these very moments, God is pursuing your maturity. Jesus is maturing you in these very moments that are seeming very frustrating to us. And there's a big question here. If this is how he is maturing you, in the stuff of real life, remember, not classroom, and I'm not saying, you know, don't ever go to a Sunday school again or don't come to RUF, because right now, isn't Paul reminding you of the simple realities? Isn't Paul making the word of God more fully known to you? Right now, isn't God through this making the, his word more fully known to you? Isn't he proclaiming Jesus to you now? You need this stuff, but we've got to remember, when you leave these doors, you are just as 100% sunk in these realities as you were in here. And at your worst moment this coming week or this past week, you were just as immersed in these realities too. You can't extract yourself from it by God's grace. This is your life now. This is where you live your life. And so if this is where we live, how is he, in, how is he maturing you? How is he teaching you? Paul says in here a word that you might just read right past and not think anything of it, but it's actually very significant because he says this is Jesus' teaching style. This is, his, this is his method of maturing his people. And he says it in chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I, I have for you and all those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Why do I have this struggle? So that their hearts, so that your hearts might be encouraged, being, or strengthened, being bound together or stitched together in love, so that you might reach the riches of full assurance, a fuller understanding of Jesus. 
so that your heart may be encouraged. There's a throwaway comment this same Paul makes to a guy that he's kind of equipping for ministry in, in, in uh, Thessalonians. And Paul is telling this new pastor, this green thumb, um, how to be a pastor. And he's saying, here's how you treat your people. And he says, uh, rebuke the idle or those who kind of uh, hard-hearted, completely living a double life, uh, correct them. Encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak, but in all things, encourage them. And he's saying the umbrella posture of a shepherd of God's people is encouragement. That's the job. And if Jesus is called the chief shepherd, if Jesus is the pastor of all pastors, then he is the epitome of encouragement. That is his teaching style with you. Not discouragement, not negativity, not prodding you in the back with a trident, but encouraging you, making you courageous. The, the word here literally means to strengthen, which is what the word encourage means, to make you courageous, encourage, to make you strong. How does he make you strong? By confronting you with this by turning up the dimmer switch that the word of God may be more fully known, the mystery more fully revealed that this Jesus is in you already, lives in you, works through you, and encourages you towards change, which next week we start getting into. And so this experience of learning again and again that I am in Christ and he is in me, what does it look like in an on-the-ground kind of a way? It looks like we start listening for his voice in the little circumstances we go through, in those little moments of temptation, we have got to slow down. We have got to start walking more slowly in those moments and stepping back and getting our bearings to hear his encouragement in those moments. What does it mean that Christ is in you and what difference does it make? It means you start getting into the fight, the battle against your temptations that still reside in you the culture clash that happens between the new kingdom and the new you and the old you. You start throwing punches. How do you confront a bully? You punch him in the nose. And Jesus dwells within you, having your back, standing shoulder to shoulder with you. It's what Rankin meant when he said, you get to say no to those temptations, even though you feel so weak. We get to learn to trust his grace is what it means that I believe Christ is in me, that after I sin, after I sin, after I fall, after I give in to the thing I said I wouldn't do this week, we still run right back to Jesus because we know this is specifically why one had to stand in my place is because I keep falling into stuff like this. And we stop with this waiting period of maybe three days of not talking to God will make me clean and make him approachable again. We learn to trust his presence in our lives even if we don't know what's around the scary corner that's coming in your story, the job that's not there yet, the internship that's not there, the major you don't know which one is for you. Knowing that Christ is in you, knowing that Christ is around the corner too when you turn around the corner and don't know what's there. It means that he is to believe that he is for me even if all the evidence in my life seems to be to the contrary. That's what it means to hold on to these things. And this is a day in and day out process of learning to more fully know the word of God, the mystery 
that Christ is in you and this is the hope of glory. Friends, if you're a Christian, you need to know your conversion was not the end of Jesus' involvement in your life. It was just the very beginning. It was the opening salvo to an eternity of his ministry to you, his care for you, his love for you, his relationship to you. It was not a one-off course correction. And if you don't know this Jesus, have you been able to read between the lines and get the fact that not a single person living in ancient Turkey was a Christian, nor was a single person until the resurrection of Jesus and the proclamation of the gospel. These are all people that were confronted by Jesus through his word and heard the invitation. Do you need to be made new? Do you need to be reconciled? Do you need to have something done with your guilt instead of you trying to wash it and it just comes back? Is your life one big scorched earth and you need spring to come and life to return? This Jesus says he's come to you and he's offered himself to you. And he doesn't just offer to correct your course and to kind of tap you on the shoulder with a little dispensation of grace, but he intends to inhabit you forever, to invade your life with his grace and with his mercy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you again every week. We thank you that you're alive, you're resurrected. I don't talk about ideas. I talk about a living person who is here in us, and you're in this room, and you're with your people. And so, would you do what I'm not able to do and I couldn't do tonight? I can't get my fingers in my heart and I can't get them in my friends' hearts. I can't change attitudes. I can't convict of sin. I can't make you beautiful in their eyes or in mine, but you can do all of those things and you love to. And so we simply ask you to do what you've always told us you would do. And we ask it in your name, amen.